Hello, my name's David Ronsman, and this is Talking Politics. Today, Helen and I are talking to Suzanne Hayward about her late husband, Jeremy Hayward, the man who effectively ran Britain for two decades. Talking Politics is brought to you in partnership with the London Review of Books, a literary magazine full of politics, and a political magazine full of literature. Listeners can subscribe at a special rate of just £1 an issue by using the URL lrb.me talk. That's lrb.me talk. Jeremy Haywood was Cabinet Secretary from 2012, the most senior person in the British Civil Service. He also became head of the Civil Service, which means he ran the rest of it too. But he had an extraordinarily close relationship with four Prime Ministers, Tony Blair, Gordon Brown, David Cameron, and Theresa May. And Suzanne Haywood has written a book with the collaboration of her husband, who died tragically young in 2018. He was just 56 at the height of his powers. And together, they wrote an account of what he had seen and learned at the very heart of British politics, all the way from Black Wednesday through to Brexit. Suzanne, the the book covers, you know, extraordinary range of events in recent British politics. And Jeremy worked closely with four prime ministers, and we'll come on to these prime ministers. But you start with the ERM crisis in 1992, when he was working with and for Norman Lamont. Do you start there? Was that a formative event for him? I mean, did that shape, do you think, how he thought about these crises in future? When I first wrote the book, I started at the beginning, as it were, you know, like uh, many biographies start. But then when I stood back and looked at the overall story, I realised, and he agreed, that actually that was the first really formative event. And I think as, as people read the book, they will see that a lot of things that he learnt in that crisis, he then reused later on. So he learned how important it is to try to get decisions made quickly. He learned the the role that kind of private office plays in the middle of a crisis. He learned a huge amount about, uh, you know, how an ERM system and that sort of thing works. He learned about the importance of partners. I mean, in that case, of course, you know, our European partners were not able to uh, step in and help us, but he learned about the importance of those international relationships. So a lot of those things then become very, very relevant later on. And it, it really was a very formative moment for him, which is why in the end, I decided to start the book there. And then I weave back in a little bit some of the earlier stuff so people have enough of the background to, to understand how he got to that point. I was wondering, as well, Suzanne, whether you or he had a sense that it's a perfect beginning for a book that's going to end in the aftermath of Brexit. Because, you know, here's this moment that I would certainly argue is pretty fundamental to what comes after it takes Britain's membership of the European Union on a on a different path than would have occurred, I think, if we'd stayed inside the exchange rate mechanism that day. And then by the end of the book, what has happened is, is that really in a rather short period of time, Britain's membership of the European Union has unraveled. And I wonder whether either of you had a sense of that sort of, this was the beginning and then here's how this story played itself out. So as I was again, looking at the the sweep of events that he was involved in, because when I first started, it was a question of getting all of those events down, making sure I'd understood his perspective on every single one of them and interviewing everybody for the book. 
I then ended up with a, a mass of material. When I then came back and looked at it, one of the other reasons why that was a very important place to start is from the point of view of Britain's relationship with Europe, falling out of the ERM, and indeed the Maastricht Treaty as well, which I kind of weave into that chapter, is the start of a journey which arguably kind of took us all the way through to Brexit. And it's it's a journey that I touch on a kind of number of times during the book, because of course various different things happen. Euroscepticism is increasing for all sorts of different reasons as we go through. So there is a thread that starts there that's very important. There's other threads, obviously, that go through the book, particularly, you know, the thread of his role and how that changed and his kind of attitude to the civil service. But I think that political thread of Britain's attitude to Europe, that's a very sensible starting point for the book. And just one more thing on this. You actually begin with those, I mean, before the crisis itself, with those negotiations where Britain needed something from European partners and essentially didn't get it. And Jeremy was there with Cameron's negotiations. He saw what happened. Do you think he had a sense early on of where it was going? Once we get to the later part of the story, you know, it's, it, with hindsight, it's tempting to see an inevitability to this. But you know, Cameron's attempted negotiation before the referendum is clearly a big part of that story. Do you think people like Jeremy, who'd seen this play out before, knew where this was likely to be heading? So Jeremy was very conscious of how difficult it was going to be to do the Brexit negotiation. He, I mean, he wrote that memo to Cameron and the memo to Cameron basically said, you know, for you to be able to convince people, you're going to need to address some of the things that, you know, we know that people are concerned about with Europe. And and one of the biggest issues is immigration. And we can come back to kind of why that had become such a big issue over the years. But what Jeremy knew is that addressing immigration is a very, very difficult thing to do with Europe because it's fundamental to one of the key freedoms within their kind of fundamental treaty. So he knew that kind of embarking on that negotiation was going to be a very, very tough one. I think he was very hopeful that Cameron was going to be able to get something from that. But I, he was very, very conscious about how hard it was. And of course, as you say, going back to those ERM negotiations, he'd seen before how difficult it is to convince others to move when it's not fully in their own interest. Can I just pick up as well on the, the chapters about the first below government and the second below government and the, the euro question? Because I found those absolutely fascinating, including, I have to say, at times a little amusing in the sense of this, these you know, endless meetings that they go to about seminars, about whether these five tests are going to be passed or not. And there's a, a point where Blair thinks that the decision's going to come and then there's 55 PowerPoint slides first before you get anywhere. And then it's basically Treasury saying no. And obviously, Jeremy himself was quite keen on the, at least want to take very seriously the case for, for joining the, the euro. I wonder how he felt about those moments in retrospect where there was a path that could have been taken differently if Blair had triumphed over Brown in these really protracted discussions that structurally were always stacked in favour of the Treasury. It was very interesting when I was writing that section with Jeremy. As as you say, there's some very amusing moments in that because it was a very, very protracted negotiation and it was drawn out and out and out. And, you know, there were some quite farcical discussions in a way, certainly kind of looking back on it. However, I think, and I, I used to work in the Treasury, I started my career in the Treasury. I'm very conscious that in a way you could look at that negotiation between the Treasury number 10 over joining EMU as being an exemplar of how we should do those sorts of things. I mean, there was a huge amount of economic analysis that was done. 
to really look at you know what the pros and cons were incredibly thorough uh, led by the treasury i think where it was more dysfunctional was in the, the interaction that then took place between the treasury and number 10 but i think jeremy was very supportive of the the weight and the thoroughness of the analysis from the treasury and as I, actually, as I make clear in the book, and partly, of course, he's influenced by what happened on Black Wednesday, Jeremy is very conscious of some of the risks that the UK would have faced going into EMU, certainly at that moment in time, because the UK economy operates in quite a different way to that of its kind of European neighbours, things like the fact that we have many, many people on, on fixed rate mortgages. How would things have been different? Well, it all depends on how EMU would have played out if we'd been within it. So I think if one believes the Treasury analysis, we would have had quite a bumpy time if we had joined at that point. And who knows whether we would have been able to stay within it, particularly through the financial crisis. And if we hadn't been able to stay in it, that may have actually made our relationship with Europe worse. So it's very hard to kind of play these games. But what I do know is that Jeremy felt that that treasury analysis was was actually very, very good. Whether or not the Prime Minister had to be dragged through quite so many PowerPoint pages, I think is a, a slightly separate issue. <laughs> I mean, a lot of people reading this book will be struck by the fact that Jeremy was one of the few people who worked very, very closely with Tony Blair and with Gordon Brown. It's not that he straddled the divide between them because during the Blair years, he worked with Blair and there was some hostility with some of Brown's advisors, but then under Brown's prime ministership, Gordon Brown was very, very dependent on Jeremy and Jeremy's advice. And so he does cut across the central divide in, in recent British politics, within certainly within um, New Labour. And your book brings out inevitably how important personal relationships are. And Jeremy clearly had an extraordinary gift for personal relationships. In the Blair years, so you have a line in it where you say one of the reasons that he wanted to work with and for Tony Blair is because Blair had a huge parliamentary majority so he says at one point, you know, he really ought to be able to get things done. I mean, particularly many of the things that Jeremy was most interested in, public sector reform. Was he frustrated in the end that despite that huge majority, he didn't manage to get those things done? And did he at that point blame Brown for it? So I think he would say that, first of all, they did achieve a lot. You know, if you look back through those chapters, there were a whole bunch of things that were achieved. And actually, Britain at the end of the Blair administration was a very different place to how it was at the start. I mean, they created foundation hospitals, they put in place the minimum wage, they put in place student fees, which was a way of reforming university financing, which people had talked about for many, many years. So a whole sweep of things were actually kind of put in place, many of which Jeremy felt very passionately about. Minimum wage in particular, I think, is an incredible reform. I do think he felt that more could have been done. I mean, obviously, a whole a whole series of things made that difficult, partly the kind of Blair-Brown relationship, but also, of course, the Iraq war. But Jeremy was very positive looking back on how much had been achieved. And I think Blair's focus on transforming public services was, as you say, something that kind of hugely excited him. And what's quite interesting as you then go into the Brown administration is how, despite the financial crisis, Jeremy is still beavering away in the background whenever he can to try and continue to do that reform of public services. But of course, it was much more difficult under Brown, given all the other issues that they were dealing with during that period. Helen, I don't know if you want to come in, but there's one quick follow-up on that, because I was I was struck. The, the book gives a very clear sense of what it's like right at the apex of power. 
and the range of influences that work on people who have to make decisions, including there's a striking amount of preoccupation with newspaper headlines, you know, starting with Norman Lamont all the way through to Theresa May, um, you know, worrying about what the newspapers will say, worrying about the coverage, of course, worrying about public opinion, then the, the intricate personal relationships between the people who are making the decisions, both elected and unelected. Parliament doesn't feature much. The idea that what Parliament will allow as a primary constraint. So in, in the Blay is there with that huge majority it ought to allow things to happen. It doesn't seem to be a huge factor relative to, and we'll talk in a minute about the coalition years. Did you feel that at all? Did you feel that in this story, Parliament was less present than one might expect, thinking about what Parliament will allow? Well, I think it depends, as you say, it depends very, very much on what sort of majority the government has. If the government has a very large majority, and actually alongside that, if the government has a very clear mandate for what it is going to try and do, then actually, as is clear in the book, you know, a lot of the kind of thinking within number 10 is how is that mandate going to be delivered with a degree of confidence that actually when that goes back to Parliament, Parliament is going to be comfortable about that. That, of course, all changes dramatically when you get into a situation like in the start of uh, Theresa May's administration, where you where you don't have that all, you know, it becomes much more tenuous. And then actually, there's a, a lot of discussion about what's going to be possible and how to kind of how to do that. I think the other way in which kind of parliament does come into the book is the select committees. Now, they're obviously much more prominent in the latter part of the book as Jeremy becomes cabinet secretary and is then actually held to account, I think, in a very effective way by Parliament. You know, he's repeatedly called in to talk to select committees about, you know, a whole range of different issues, how the referendums are run, what information is going to be sent out, you know, leakages of information. And he took those very, very seriously, did a massive revision for them, tried to kind of, you know, present the facts as kind of clearly as he could. And I think that mechanism works very well. But you're right, when when a prime minister has a very large majority and a clear mandate for what they're going to do, then actually the kind of parliamentary calculation is much less within the centre. Yeah, I was just wondering about the Blair years again in, in retrospect, what Jeremy thought sort of by the time we get to like 2016. Because, you know, like one way of telling the story is, is when we look back at it, that it looks like that there are these issues that are going to come in in some sense overwhelm British politics, the union and Britain's membership of the European Union that are actually bubbling away there during the the Blair years. But actually, at the time, the focus is on the positive side from Blair's point of view about achieving public sector reform, which obviously, as you said, was something that Jeremy was thought was very important. And then if you like the political narrative that's usually put over the top of that is then that that gets overwhelmed by Blair's difficulties over Iraq and the fallout of Iraq, the failure with the Iraq war. In some sense now, when I think at least to me, when we look back, is, is that public sector reform seems to like belong to a, another political world. And actually, we can see the political world that we started living in after 2014 from the Scottish referendum. Already there, we can see the difficulties that devolution created around the, um, the union. We can see this tussle that you described so well between the Treasury and um Blair over monetary union. And although, as I say, I really like the way you wrote those chapters, they were very amusing. At the same time, you get the sense of, can't you kind of see what the implication to them, the characters at the time, can't you kind of see where this is going, what the implications of debating this in this way, that actually the entirety of Britain's membership of the European Union is ultimately going to be at stake. So I just wondered like what his sense was looking back again 
about the Blair years and the things that he ended up spending his enormous energy on? He was he was certainly very proud of what they achieved during the Blair years and the amount of reform that that had been possible. And as I say, you know, kind of coming out of it, Britain was a very different place to going into it. In the book, I try to be very honest. And actually, I said to Jeremy when I was writing it, that, you know, this was not going to be a whitewash or, you know, some sort of heliography. I try to be very, very clear in the book. And in fact, he was very clear when he talked to me. I mean, he absolutely wanted this to be a true and fair account of, of where he, it includes things that went right. It also includes things that went wrong. And, and you'll see that um, after the Scottish referendum, actually, one of the things that Jeremy is very conscious of is that Whitehall had not paid enough attention to thinking about the union. In fact, there wasn't really a, a kind of proper unit that thought about the union. And that was one of the things that Jeremy created. But you could say that was far too late. I mean, it was actually after that referendum and, and that unit has since been expanded and still exists. But that clearly was something, I think, that had been missed. And the fact that it was created at that point, I think, kind of says something. Um, Likewise, if you take the European kind of theme, that bubbles along all the way through the book. And I actually think one of the interesting things is there was a very early report, um, as I described, by the kind of PIU on the Performance and Innovation Unit, uh, which is one of many units that is created and disappears in the course of the book. But anyway, that was quite an interesting unit that was looking at policy through an economic lens. And it actually laid out the kind of pros and cons of immigration for the British economy and concluded actually that um, some of the threats of immigration were overstated and there were many benefits from an economic point of view of immigration. And Tony Blair at the time decided that he would publish that, which Jeremy was pleased about because it was actually putting some of these facts out into the public domain. But then it was never really referred to again. And I I do think that Jeremy felt very frustrated that the kind of the, the case for immigration was never really very well communicated. You know, the case against it, I think, has always been quite well communicated. And for people to make a decision, they need to hear both sides of that argument. I think he felt that not enough attention had been paid to the kind of two sides, despite the fact that quite a lot of that was known from quite early on. And I think that becomes clear as you you kind of read through the narrative. So I'm going to ask you something which is a bit speculative, and so I may be completely wrong, but the, the impression I got reading the book is that Jeremy, uh, so he worked closely with four prime ministers, he was very loyal to them, his job was to support them, and he was able to transition between administrations, and each of them came to depend on him enormously. There's a real affection for Gordon Brown, unless I'm misreading it. It seemed to me, and and you, you must tell me if I'm wrong, that notwithstanding the fact that during the Blair years, he was on the other side of the Blair-Brown wars, during Brown's administration, and, and you know, it was a crisis all, almost from the beginning. The financial crisis put everyone under huge strain, so there was clearly a kind of camaraderie around that too. But that there was real affection there for Gordon Brown. Did I misread that? Jeremy would say that he, you know, hugely respected all the prime ministers that he worked for. I mean, they're very different people, as, as we know. Gordon Brown, as you say, they faced the most enormous crisis during that period. And actually, I have to say that it was only when I went and wrote the book and and interviewed all of the large number of the witnesses, as it were, that were were there, that I realised quite how close to the edge we came. And it was one of the few moments, actually, where Jeremy had several nights when he didn't sleep, which is almost unheard of for Jeremy. I mean, he had this phenomenal ability to 
deal with stress and keep going. So there was a, an incredible amount of camaraderie. And he massively respected Gordon Brown's ability to grab hold of that issue and to understand that issue in a, a level of detail that actually few other leaders at that moment in time were able to do. So whatever kind of Gordon's weaknesses are, and like all of us, he has his flaws and, and they're also kind of well known, he was incredible at kind of taking that and understanding it. And then, you know, he dominated that G20 and drove a set of conclusions, partly because he just knew his material far better than anybody else. And Jeremy was immensely kind of respectful of that and what he did. And of course, they were all in a bunker together. So I think I think you're right. There, there was a lot of affection between them. Was it more or less? I mean, I think because they were thrown together during that period, they certainly were close. But what's also clear, and it's quite interesting reading the story through Jeremy's eyes, is then when there is a transition and Cameron comes in, and of course, Jeremy and Cameron know each other very well because they work together in Lamont's office in, in Black Wednesday. So we're back to the beginning again. He switches because his loyalty is always to the prime minister of the day. It's absolutely to the, the kind of prime minister of the day as it should be. I just wanted to pick up on that because I was really struck by that. I'm the sense that I hadn't really thought about what it would be like for the civil servants where you just literally, some people walk out of the door and a new set of people walk in the door. And then suddenly you've got to make the whole thing work with a completely different set of um, human beings, obviously, in this case, with the prime minister with whom he, he did have a prior relationship. But I, I just wonder whether you had any sense of just like how it is psychologically possible to do that in the realm, if you like, of exercising power and that you just sort of say, OK, we're doing it for one set of purposes, according to what these people want to do. And then literally minutes later that you're doing something completely different or not completely different, but significantly different. I think it is tough because two things, I mean, two big things change at that at that moment. Obviously, you, you've suddenly got to, and in fact, I describe it at one point in the book, you know, Jeremy described it as suddenly all the in-flight initiatives across Whitehall, because at any, any moment in time, as you can imagine, you know, there are thousands of different policies being decided across all the different Whitehall departments. At the moment at which you have a transition, they all pause, they all wait, and then Every single one of them now may or may not land, as you previously expected, because you've got a new administration that has come in. So you've, you've got that. Then you've got the kind of personal loyalties. So you've all of a sudden got to switch your personal loyalties from one administration to another. And not only that, but and I try to describe this actually at that moment when there's that transition from Brown to Cameron. Of course, there are other transitions in the book, but that one is the starkest because you're moving from you know, Labour to the coalition. Uh, you're actually moving from really quite different kind of personalities. So the kind of change in, in style is very dramatic as well. And I described Jeremy kind of sitting there and he described this to me with this kind of temple throbbing as he tried to understand what was happening in the room. So he, he knew Cameron. He didn't know everybody in the room. He didn't know the relationships between them. He didn't know who took decisions, who didn't take decisions, who had the prime minister's ear, who didn't. And the language is different. I mean, it was interesting talking to him. The, the whole language that a new administration comes in with, because they've all been working in opposition together, is different. So you've got all of these in-flight initiatives that may or may not land. You've got a sudden kind of change of tone, change of style, complete kind of change of cast of characters, a change of language. And the civil services job is to keep the show on the road, as it were, so some things have to be decided quite quickly, and then to adapt what you're doing. And this was something that Jeremy learned how to do very early on. And, and in fact, we go back to the beginning again, when Norman Lamont 
resigns as Chancellor and Ken Clark comes in. And actually, Jeremy and the then head of the Treasury and, and longtime mentor of Jeremy's, Terry Burns, they make their way over to meet the new Chancellor, Ken Clark. And Jeremy described to me how he found it rather odd that they didn't really talk very much about Norman. And that was because now they had to focus on their new chancellor. Their new chancellor was Ken Clark and, and really tried to make sure that they were giving him the best possible support. So, so Jeremy learned about those transitions very early on. But it, it there was always a, a kind of an emotional part of that. But but that's what the civil service does. And I, I think it comes across how professionally they do it, uh, often in quite extraordinary circumstances. Talking Politics is brought to you in partnership with the London Review of Books. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. And as you say, the move from the end of the Blair-Brown years to the coalition was extraordinary for lots of reasons, not least because coalition government was new and no one really knew what the rules were. And some of the rules had to be made up as they went along, and then some of them were legislated for, like the Fixed-Term Parliament Act, which then turned out to have unexpected consequences further down the line. But one of the things that really came across to me is, as you say, Jeremy's there in the room trying to work out the dynamics between these people, when there might have been an expectation that coalition government would be sort of slow and difficult because you've got to get more agreements across parties and so on. And actually, what comes across is that he's almost worried that it's too quick. And there's a bit in the book where you describe his anxiety that so many decisions are being made so quickly, and maybe the Fixed Term Parliament Act is one, without anyone having the time to think them through, because this new form of government has kind of opened up all these opportunities for doing things in a new way, just sort of seeing things afresh. And that actually, that there is a feeling in the book that there's something really attractive and exciting about the coalition, because a lot of things happen quicker during that period, certainly the early part of it until some of the personal relationships go wrong. Do you think he, in the, the full sweep of his career, found the, the coalition years an attractive model for how to do British politics? I think you're right. I, I think, you know, when, when the coalition first came in, I mean, obviously, you had two manifestos that they brought together. And then very, very quickly, they created a, a kind of joint list of the things that they wanted to do. And they were working at pace. Now, the, there's two things going on here. First of all, I think it's very clear in the book that there is a, a natural arc that each administration goes through. When an administration first comes in, certainly one with a, a good majority, they actually can get a huge amount done in the first part of that first term. And then it often becomes much more difficult. So one of the kind of learnings from this, and I think for the civil service as well as uh, for, for kind of politicians, is if you've got an agenda, that's the time to kind of get on with it. And, and really, if you want to make change happen, do it fast and you know while you have that kind of honeymoon period behind you. Uh, with you. And then I think the other thing is because, you know, one of the benefits of, of coalition is it, it forced a degree of formality into the centre of government. And I think Jeremy initially thought this might be quite kind of complicated and bureaucratic. But actually what he found was that formality 
led to quite fast decision making because people were forced to be aligned, things were very clear in how they were they were structured and so on. So there were all sorts of benefits, and it did mean that that first phase of the coalition was very fast. I do think it kind of, as you say, maybe some things were decided too quickly, but it was very, very productive. A lot of things kind of moved through. And I think we have a kind of sense at the end of the Brown administration, it was very, very hard for Gordon to get things done in that last phase. So all of a sudden, things speed up. But then coalition becomes very difficult later on, because uh, as you start to move towards that next election, it's very difficult and particularly difficult for the smaller party. Can I read you a line from the book? Because this is one of the central questions that comes up time and time again. What is the job of someone who is so close to a prime minister and who is there to be a a sounding board and also to offer a warning? So if things are happening too quickly and so on. But you also, you describe periods, so maybe the, the Andrew Lansley reforms are a good example of this, where though almost everyone seems to have doubts, past a certain point, it's the job of civil servants to make it happen despite their doubts. So there's a point where you you quote Jeremy saying, sometimes you get to a point where you have to stop raising objections. If a minister prioritises a policy and has the prime minister's backing, then it's the civil service's job to make the best of it. So there is a point at which you just have to swallow your objections and get on with it. How hard did Jeremy find that? Because, you know, it's difficult to read this book and not to get the sense that he understood most of these things better than the politicians he was advising. And yet it was his job to swallow his objections. Did he find it hard? I think what is what is clear in the book, and certainly was very clear as Jeremy described it to me and his belief, is ministers are representing the electorate. And what the civil service does is that they support ministers in delivering you know, what the electorate has elected the, the party to do. There are multiple points in the book where you might say, well, you know, if we'd done what Jeremy thought, then maybe things would have been better, maybe, maybe sometimes kind of worse, who knows. But Jeremy was always very clear that ministers make decisions. They are elected, the civil service is not elected. In fact, that you know, it comes up later with, you know, why didn't Jeremy do more to prepare for the Brexit vote? Again, decision was with ministers. Civil service has a responsibility to raise issues and ask questions and to kind of point out when things might have problems or unintended consequences, but the decisions are for ministers. And a little bit like that ministerial transition point, I think it's something that you understand as a civil servant. It's very fundamental to how that works. It's very clear, you know, that you can you can push actually quite a lot. You earn a lot of respect from ministers by kind of pushing and making your views clear. But once a decision has been made, that is the the job of ministers. And then the civil services job is as, as Jeremy said, to make the best of that decision um, and not not to keep on questioning it beyond a certain point. I was going to bring up the issue of the referendum preparations, both in the case of the Scottish referendum and the case of the, the Brexit referendum and Cameron's decision in both cases that, that no preparation was to be made for negative outcomes from his point of view. And as I recall, he says something like, it's not the government's job to prepare for things, it's not the government's policy. But that seemed to me from Cameron's position a sort of almost like a staggering misjudgment because the very nature of the referendum is is that he's not having the government decide, he's having the electorate, letting the electorate decide these questions. And the electorate can't govern, so it can't prepare itself for what the outcomes of of what happens if it votes one way rather than the other way. And I just wondered how difficult um, Jeremy found accepting Cameron's decision in those two instances where he says essentially 
we're not prepared to allow the consequences of our own decision making to either allow a referendum in the case of Scotland or hold a referendum in the case of Brexit to play themselves out? It's a very interesting question. I mean, Jeremy's role in both of those cases was to ask the Prime Minister for permission to prepare for the vote to go against where the government wanted. And as you say, kind of Cameron's position was that um, the government had no responsibility. You know, it wasn't the the government's job to prepare for something that wasn't government policy. And certainly there's no constitutional reason why, why the government has to do that. You know, there's no kind of reason in any of the kind of codes that the government has to prepare for something that's not their policy. It's interesting. I mean, and I think the kind of other reason why it's difficult is if you're going to run a referendum and then you start preparing, of course, for the vote that you don't want, and then that leaks because things inevitably leak from within government, then that can create its own sorts of problems. Did Jeremy find it difficult? I don't think so. I mean, Jeremy's view, as as I was saying before, is the civil service's job is to ask the questions, to highlight where there are issues, and then to accept ministerial decisions because ministers are elected by the people and the civil service is not. So on that and many other issues, that was how he always behaved and that was always how he advised his his, um, his fellow civil servants to behave. I mean, I think on an issue like that, there's a kind of question about whether or not you know we're happy that that is the way that we run a referendum or not. And I, I don't know. But, but certainly for the civil service, while the decision is with elected ministers, that's the kind of choice that they're, they're certainly kind of open to make. Because there's an argument ongoing now about what seems likely to be the next Scottish referendum, whether the lessons should have been learned from the previous Scottish and from the Brexit referendum, that the question itself or the options put before the people have to include some working out of what it would mean to vote against the status quo. So whether that means a range of options. So in the Scottish case, you know, it could have Cameron decided against having more than a binary choice, decided against having Debo Max on the ballot paper. But whether there are different ways of actually running a referendum, different ways of asking people the question. And though these things are manifesto commitments, there's a commitment to hold them in that referendum. In the British Constitution, because referendums until recently have been relatively rare, there aren't actually that many rules about how you do it. It is still very dependent upon the advice that ministers receive about what is possible and what's practical and so on. This is a sort of question for you as much as for anyone. Do you think, in the light of these experiences, actually the lesson that should be drawn from this when the next one comes, say the Scottish one, we should actually do the referendum itself differently? We should ask the question differently if the preparation should be in the question itself? I'm not sure that the biggest issue is in the way in which the question is asked. I mean, that that clearly has a big, I mean, it's a a huge issue of negotiation because, as we all know, the way in which you're asked the question very much influences the way in which you answer the question. I think the thing that Jeremy would point to as being most important is that we find a way of communicating to the people who are making the decision as factually as possible the consequences of making a decision one way or another. And I think, as is clear in the book, what he fought for repeatedly, as much as he possibly could, was to try and make those factual positions really clear to people. Because people can choose to leave the European Union or to stay in the European Union, but they need to do that based on real and true facts. And I think it's arguable that both sides of that debate made those facts quite unclear. I would argue that that's the most important thing is that we need if we're going to ask the people to make decisions and there's 
a very interesting debate about how often that should be done and how it should be done. The most important thing is we're going to trust people. We're going to ask people that they are the people of the country to make a decision. They need to be informed. They need to be able to find a way to get really factual information about the consequences of this choice that they are making for themselves. And I think actually as a country, we sometimes have failed to make that clear enough to people. Yeah, I wanted to know in retrospect what he thought about the what had happened in the Scottish referendum where something obviously, a different dynamic played out and that was that quite literally in the middle of the referendum campaign, although it wasn't on the ballot paper, so to speak, that the politicians of the three main parties encouraged by Gordon Brown and Jeremy was involved in those discussions of the connection between Brown and, and Cameron and getting to the point of the row, come along and essentially say to the, the Scottish electorate in the middle of the referendum campaign, if you vote no, then we promise that we will make changes essentially to the way the British constitution works in order to give Scotland more power. But you've been pretty hard pushed to argue there was any kind of legitimacy basis, if you like, in democratic terms or constitutional terms for this intervention in the middle of the, the Scottish referendum. So I, I wondered how, again, in retrospect, you felt about that, the vow moment, particularly given that actually the upshot of it was actually after the referendum was over, that support for the union actually diminished in Scotland rather than increased. So I think he would argue that the vow was entirely constitutional. There's nothing that prevents parties coming together and making a pledge during a campaign. And in fact, if I go if I go back to what I was saying before, if we want people factually to understand what the consequences are of voting one way or another, part of the factual consequence is understanding how the government and indeed the opposition will act in the case of a, a vote one way or another. So what the vow was doing is saying, if you vote no, then we're pledging to do these things. So take that into account as you're deciding which way you're going to you're going to vote. So I don't see anything, uh, you know, a constitutional issue about that. In fact, I think Jeremy felt that that was quite helpful because it was clarifying for people a consequence. You're right, you know, the the, the issue of, of what happens with Scotland hasn't gone away. And I think the kind of issue of how we run referenda has not gone away either. And maybe it's something that, you know, Parliament will want to come back to at some point. Suzanne, the book is a very political book. It's full of huge political events and Jeremy was at the heart of all of them. But it's also a very personal book. It describes your family life. It describes both the, the struggles and the joy of you and Jeremy going through IVF and then of course the the finale with Jeremy's terrible illness and it's very moving anyone who reads it I think is going to have two questions about Jeremy because he was so extraordinary in his ability to function under incredible pressure including when personal circumstances were difficult how did he compartmentalize it's so extraordinary to read about it how did he do it it's a very good question. And I, and I honestly don't know how he did it. Um, I mean, there are a whole bunch of reasons why I included that personal side of the story. I mean, one is I'm in a very privileged position in that I'm able to tell a 360 degree story of Jeremy in a way that normally if you're writing somebody's biography, you just can't do. And by doing that, I think you're able to reveal much more about them, because what is incredible is you have this, you know, the, the great events of state kind of going on. 
And then in the background, of course, we've got our much smaller, but of course, to us, very, very important kind of issues going on. And often these things are colliding at the same moment. And I, I hope, and this was my intention, that by telling that kind of much more rounded story, so we've got all the sort of stuff that we talked about, the financial crisis and Brexit and Black Wednesday, but we've got our, our own kind of personal narrative going on as well. It reminds people a little bit that, you know, this this is all about people. You know, we, we talk about ministries, we talk about number 10 and Downing Street, but these are, this is about people. It's not about buildings it, or processes. It is about people and it's about relationships and, and people have other things kind of going on at the same time. But he did have this extraordinary ability to put, even when we had really quite major kind of crises going on, to one side and to focus on what was going on. I honestly don't know how he did it. And he did that at the end as his health became worse and worse and worse and worse and, and literally kept on sending emails until the point where he just couldn't pick his phone up anymore. And it is quite extraordinary and quite moving. And quite honestly, on, on my side, often incredibly frustrating, you know, to get him to focus on anything other than that, particularly when, you know, his health was so bad, was almost impossible. But it's also, you know, really quite inspiring. And then in a way, the other question that goes along with that, because no one can read this book without being sort of exhausted by how much he did. I mean, it's it's overwhelming how many different things he had on his plate at any given moment. And occasionally you describe days where he receives hundreds and hundreds of emails, and he seems to reply to most of them at the same time as having to invite, advise across this spectrum of issues, seeing connections between them, but often they weren't connected. So this, the how did he compartmentalize question, but how did he prioritize? How within a day did he know what to focus on? And do you think that was the, at the heart of his genius? Because a number of the prime ministers that he worked with describe him as a genius. Um, so he had a genius for the role that he occupied. Was it this ability to know at any given moment what he should focus on? Was that the heart of it? I think his real genius, and actually you touched on it earlier, his real genius was in relationships. You know, he had the most incredible network, both within government, outside of government. And he seemed to have that very rare thing. He was able to inspire people. People did their best for him um, somehow without him really demanding it or, or kind of expecting it that he did. And so when those, you know, many, many emails came in, he knew who to kind of contact. You know, he had a relationship with them. He, they became involved. They did stuff. Um, so that was a big, big part of his genius was those interpersonal skills that he had, had that often we neglect. You know, we, we put huge weight on how clever people are. And I think we kind of underweight how good people are, those kind of relationships, negotiations, finding ways through. At one point, I say in the book, you know, he he knew he had to find his way through, I forget which policy it was he was dealing with, but he had to find a way through it and find a way to get to the other side and let everybody take back something that looked good. And he was incredible at, at finding ways to do that. His other genius was he was incredibly good at being present in the moment. He wasn't one of these people who would be sitting at home, tapping away on his um, BlackBerry or later kind of iPhone and half listening to the conversation. He was very good in the moments when he was with us. I mean, me and the kids, uh, Johnny, Lizzie and Peter, we're now kind of teenagers. He was incredibly present and he would listen to them and joke and we'd play quizzes and muck around and all the things that a kind of family does. And actually, I don't think any of the three children would say that 
they didn't have time with him because he had that ability to be present. And his colleagues said the same thing. You know, when you talk to Jeremy, he was there with you. He wasn't just half there with you. He was there with you. And I think that was a, a real kind of genius as well. Suzanne Hayward's book written about and with Jeremy Hayward is called What Does Jeremy Think? Jeremy Hayward and the Making of Modern Britain. It's definitely worth reading and it's available now. Next week on Talking Politics, we are going to be doing the next in our series about the history of the different parts of the Union. And we're going to be talking about Northern Ireland and its relationship to all of the rest. And next week on Talking Politics History of Ideas, you can hear me talking about the thought of Friedrich Nietzsche, one of the most extraordinary thinkers ever. Do join us for all of that. My name is David Runciman, and we've been Talking Politics. <laughs>